Our Father in heaven, you have given us significant revelation concerning our suffering. We thank you, Lord, that you, uh, in your word, give us help concerning the why of our suffering. But, Lord, you also lead us through all the passages on suffering to trust increasingly in you. And I pray over these three weeks as we uh, immerse ourselves in this subject that you would do just that, that you would increase our trust level, that you would open up new vistas in us, in our hearts and minds to trust you. And, Father, that we would be transformed by being in your word together. Lord God, I I pray now that you would attend uh, our hearts and minds, attend your word as we look at this magnificent, magnificent section of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It has always caused me to tremble when I hear the announcement that Jesus makes immediately after he meets Saul of Tarsus powerfully and savingly on the road to Damascus. Jesus says in Acts 9.16 that he will show Saul how much Saul must suffer for the sake of my name. Get that. The Christ-ordained program for the freshly born-again Saul of Tarsus who is also known as the Apostle Paul, the program for Paul would be one that was marked by suffering. As Paul worked to make the name of Jesus Christ great, and as he worked to spread the gospel amongst the nations, he would find himself suffering. And what happened? Well, even before Acts 9 was even finished, Paul learned of an assassination plot that had been hatched against him and he had to flee the area. Suffering. Then in Acts chapter 14, Paul is stoned by a mob and left for dead because of his gospel witness. More suffering. In Acts chapter 21, Paul is dragged forcibly out of the temple and beaten by a crowd of people. And there are several places in Paul's letters where he catalogs the suffering and the trauma that he experienced while he was trying to faithfully minister the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul lists afflictions, hardships, calamities, Beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger as he describes the suffering he accounted while striving to make Jesus great amongst the nations. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks again of imprisonments, beatings, and near-death experiences. He mentions receiving 40 lashes less one on five separate occasions. He describes being beaten with rods on three separate occasions and being stoned and shipwrecked 
and adrift at sea, in danger from rivers, in danger from thieves, in danger from his own people, in danger in the city and in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers, he says, in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, he says, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety, listen to that, my anxiety for all the churches. Friends, Paul was a person who knew physical trauma and he knew emotional pain. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul describes being afflicted at every turn Fighting without and fear within. In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, Paul talks about the designs that some had to afflict him even while he was in prison. In Philippians 2, he talks about how he almost lost his fellow worker and fellow soldier, Epaphroditus, to a serious illness, which... Paul says, would have amounted to sorrow upon sorrow for him had Epaphroditus died. So then it becomes clear, does it not, that what Jesus declared over Paul's life in the moment after Paul's turning to Jesus came true. Paul suffered enormously for acting on the burning zeal that God had embedded in him, a zeal to share the treasure of his life with others. But Paul was a person who knew, listen, he knew that just as Jesus himself suffered pain and trial and horror in order that the redemptive designs of God would flower out in unsurpassed magnificence. So Paul, who was not above his master, would have to live out the same pattern. Paul knew that suffering came because of his union with the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 6.17, listen to what he says about his union with the suffering servant Jesus Christ. He said, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul talks in Philippians 3.10 and Romans 8.17 of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus and suffering with Jesus. Jesus To be in union with the crucified Jesus Christ means to suffer with Jesus. Are you with me this morning? But friends, Paul also knew the love of his Lord and the power of his Lord in the midst of all those sufferings. See, Paul had the correct perspective on the pronounced suffering that he experienced. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and following that we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed. The perplexion is very real. 
but not driven to despair. Persecuted. Paul knew persecution. Forty lashes less one five times. Beaten with rods three times. Persecuted, he says, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying, listen to what he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And Paul is sure in Romans 8 that tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword are are all things that can never separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Paul had the right perspective on his suffering. And Paul is confident in Romans 8.18, listen, that the sufferings, listen to this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, Paul suffered immensely for the gospel. There is no question. But Paul had the proper God-centered, Christ-focused, spirit-saturated perspective on his suffering. Now, we're spending this week and the next two weeks looking closely at texts found in 2 Corinthians. I hope you have a Bible and that you're there with us, 2 Corinthians. There were some people in the Corinthian church who were disturbed by the fact that Paul, this leader, this apostle in the church, was suffering so enormously. They had a problem with that. David Garland gives us a great summary of why the Corinthians were troubled by how much Paul suffered. Garland writes, Some Corinthians doubted that the reign of Christ could ever triumph through such a weak and perishable apostle whose life always seemed to be at risk. His mission seemed to be filled with nothing but mishap. Where was the evidence of God's power? For some who evaluated him from a worldly perspective, Paul's unending suffering cast doubt on his apostolic power and the shame that some attached to his travail subverted his authority in the church. They may have thought that God would do a better job watching over Paul if he were doing what God wanted. Close quote. Well, friends, one of the big ideas in 2 Corinthians is this. Paul is responding to those doubts about him that were circulating amongst the Corinthians. Paul is at pains in this letter to show, listen, to show how being in Christ means suffering. Though there is comfort in the suffering. Being in Christ means weakness. Though God shows his strength in weakness. In fact, as R. Kent Hughes has argued in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, listen, suffering and affliction were really the key to the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. 
Now, I want to say that again because it's important. Suffering and affliction were really the key to the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. Doesn't that go against so much popular thinking? See, some today teach that suffering in your life means that your faith must be lacking. Or that suffering in your life means that you must somehow be outside of God's best for you. Well, according to what Paul argues in 2 Corinthians, the contrary is true. Weakness and suffering and deathliness in the life of the believer may be good indicators that you are connected vitally to the suffering servant, Jesus. Let's dive in then to the first of three passages in 2 Corinthians that will be our focus over the next few weeks. The first passage we want to spend time with is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. Paul begins here with a doxology, with a little song of grateful praise to God. He says in verse 3, Blessed, blessed, Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now, why specifically, we ask, why specifically does Paul begin this letter praising God like he does? One possible reason for Paul's outburst of praise here as the letter opens might be that God had very recently delivered Paul from an impossible situation. Down in verse 8 of the chapter, Paul mentions the impossible situation. He says that while he was in Asia, he had been utterly burdened beyond his strength, despairing of life itself. But now, Here he was at some point a little later, and he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, delivered by God out of that impossible situation in Asia. And so he's beginning the letter with praise and thanksgiving to God. Now notice he calls God the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. I really like what Paul Tripp says concerning this phrase here in verse 3. Tripp says this, Listen to this. God really is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He can do for you what no one else can do. He has power that no one else possesses. He is able and willing to meet you in your moments of need, even when that need is self-inflicted. He will never mock you in your weakness. He will not stand idly by and sarcastically say, I told you so. He finds no joy in your suffering. He is full of compassion. He abounds in mercy. He will never walk away disgusted. He will never use your weakness against you. He has no favorites and shows no partiality. He never grows tired. This is still Paul Tripp, by the way. He will, never, he will never quit because he's had enough. He will never quit because he's had enough. He will never refuse to give you what he's promised because you've messed up so badly. 
Listen to this. He is just as faithful to all his promises on your very worst day as he is on your very best day. He doesn't ask you to earn his compassion or to do things to gain his mercy. He knows how weak and fickle your heart is, yet he continues to move toward you with unrelenting and empowering grace. I'm cracking up here. He delights in meeting your needs. Do you know God that way? He finds joy in bringing peace to your heart. He really is everything you need. Yes. Our God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now note that word comfort at the end of verse 3. It's important for us to see here that the word comfort and comforts and comforted these these word this word group appears a total of 10 times in verses 3 through 7 so without question then the concept of comfort is the key idea in this passage God is the God of all comfort in verse 3 let's talk about this idea of comfort for a moment You know, when I was a little kid in Edmonton, I had to go to the dentist several times over the years uh, to get fillings in my cavity-stricken molars. The dentist, bless his heart, knew that many children, many kids were coming into his office with real anxiety about getting a filling. So what they offered me as I sat there nervously in the dentist's chair was something they called... The happy nose. The happy nose was a mask that was connected to a supply of nitrous oxide. And as you sat there breathing the happy nose for a while before the procedure, you began to feel pretty relaxed. I have memories of breathing through the happy nose and just sort of staring up at the ceiling and actually feeling sleepy as they got the needle ready to poke in the back of my throat and turn the drill on. The happy nose's purpose was to make me comfortable, to sort of tranquilize me, free me up a little bit from the anxiety that I was feeling uh, before the suffering really began to, to start. Well, friends, listen. That idea of comfort... The happy nose idea of comfort, where one is tranquilized or relieved from anxiety, brought into a physical state of ease. This is not exactly what Paul has in mind in this passage when he repeatedly employs the parakaleo word group, which we translate here as comfort. In fact, The happy nose definition of comfort, where we define comfort as physical ease or contentment, is a relatively recent development in language, like from the 17th century onward. The older sense of the word comfort, from before the 17th century and all the way back to the New Testament, has to do with, listen, strengthening a person, fortifying a person, encouraging a person to endure. 
so that the older idea of comfort has a more sort of active and purposeful sense about it than the happy nose idea of comfort. And it's this more active, this more purposeful sense of strengthening, fortifying, that is the sense of the word in our passage. As David Garland says, the comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a languorous feeling of contentment. It is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pain. It is rather, listen, a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Did you hear that? Comfort, in the way Paul uses the word, is a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Garland says, comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and assurance. Paul says in verse 4 that it's God who comforts us, who strengthens and fortifies and encourages us in all our affliction. Now, friends, note that word, that little word there very carefully, in. Note that word in, in verse 4. God comforts us, oh watch this, God comforts us, he strengthens us, he fortifies us in, in all our affliction. That is to say that God is there with us giving this strength and fortification and encouragement when we are in the deep waters or in the fire. In our affliction. God may not extract us or take us out of our affliction. He may not prevent the affliction in the first place, but the promise is that he will be with us in the affliction. Fortifying us and giving us the strength to endure. And friends, Paul knew of what he spoke. He had known God's comfort in All his afflictions. In prison, Paul had known the comforting presence of God. In the moment when Paul was shipwrecked, God's comfort had been active and apparent. As Paul recovered from painful welts on his back from the 40 lashes, he had known the comfort of God in that moment. God had comforted Paul in all his afflictions. And so in Romans 15.5, Paul could identify God as the God of endurance and encouragement. The God of endurance and encouragement. Because Paul knew God in that way. Paul had personally experienced what the Israelites had experienced in the days of the Exodus. God had seen Paul's affliction. God had heard Paul's cry. God had known Paul's sufferings. God had come down to Paul to be near him and with him in his affliction. This is our God. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions. Well, I want you to notice carefully where Paul goes next in verse 4. When we are afflicted, When we suffer, when trials and difficulties assail us, 
we often feel like one of the potholes in Montreal. Broken, rough, cracked, low down. We wouldn't blame people if they turned to avoid us. One of the nagging thoughts that I've had in times of trial is the thought, what possible good can come out of this situation? If there's fruit that's supposed to come out of this time of suffering, I will believe it when I see it because at the moment I'm just not seeing that as a possibility. You ever thought that way? The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of Almighty God, says in verse 4 that in God's mysterious design, our suffering, listen, is purposed to bear fruit. Did you know that? The rough and ugly pothole is meant to sprout a beautiful little flower. Paul tells us that God comforts us in all our affliction so that, okay, so the words so that are a tip-off to us. They indicate a purpose clause in the text. There's a purpose for why God comforts us in all all of our affliction, and that purpose is so that we may be able to comfort, to strengthen, to fortify, to bolster and encourage those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see this? Your suffering and the comfort that God gives you in your suffering is designed of God to be productive, to bear fruit. As Paul Tripp puts it, the hard moments are not just for your growth in grace, but for your call to be a tool of that same grace in the life of another sufferer. In difficulty, God is softening your heart. God has a way to do that. God is softening your heart and sharpening your edges so that you may be ready to make the comfort of the invisible Father visible in the life of the weary pilgrim he has placed in your pathway. God intends for you to give away the comfort you've been given. Yes. Now, friends, listen. All of us, especially if we're adults, have a limp, a limp in our life. Something that happened or that is happening that wounded us, that unsettled us, that devastated us, that we carry with us wherever we go. What's your limp? What's the pothole or the potholes in your life? I encourage you today to say to yourself, I am weak because of this thing. But God promises to work his strength through my weakness. My most effective ministry to others just might be located in this pothole that I carry. 
my affliction and the comfort God gives or has given in my affliction, this has all been allowed in my life so that I could show Christ to others by my example as I walk through the suffering, so that I could become more earnest and more focused and more fervent in my prayers for others, so that I could sensitively and tactfully and wisely offer words of comfort and encouragement to others, having walked through this difficult path myself. God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now before we go to verses 5 and 6 and 7, I was thinking this week on the topic of offering comfort to those who are suffering. I was thinking a little bit on that. I was thinking about what effective or meaningful comfort looks like versus less than effective comfort. And I just wanted to share a brief thought or two on bringing comfort to sufferers. So this this is for those who would be comforters to those who are going through it. If you have somebody going through it in your life, Uh, These are words of encouragement to you. I would say that you don't need to be overly preoccupied with words and uptight about the right words to say when you are bringing comfort to a sufferer. A caring hug offered in silence can often be more meaningful and more memorable to the suffering person than a whole bunch of words. Your comforting presence is the thing, (laughs) more than your words, especially when the pain for the sufferer is raw and when it is fresh. John Feinberg illustrates this by asking, he wrote a great little book on suffering after he discovered that his wife had Huntington's disease. John Feinberg illustrates it by asking us to imagine a little girl in a playground who falls and skins her knee. The girl runs screaming in pain to her mom. Now in that moment, the mom may choose to explain to the daughter that she is now facing the consequences of running so fast. Or the mom may choose to explain the laws of gravity and friction and causation to her daughter all of which have contributed to her suffering, or the mom may choose in that moment to teach her daughter a few lessons about what God might be up to in this incidence of the scraped knee. But friends, here's the thing. All the while, the daughter is still in great pain. Her knee just hurts. As Feinberg says, All the explanation at that moment doesn't stop her pain. The child doesn't want a discourse. She wants and needs her mother's hug and kisses. There will be time for the discourse later. Now she needs comfort. The point is that when someone is in physical or emotional pain, when hurt or confusion or grief is raw for someone, they don't need intellectual discourse because it's not an intellectual matter at that point. 
What will strengthen and fortify the suffering person more is a hug, a shoulder, someone available to them who will simply listen to them as they pour out their heart. And friends, I mean, when I talk about listening, it's such a lost art in our day. I mean, listen. Listen. Be tuned into the person with your body language. Listen to them. You know what listening is not? Listening is not planning and plotting a response while the other person is talking. Right? Sometimes I know I've listened the best when the other person finishes talking and I just have absolutely nothing to say. Then I know that I've listened more than I've been analyzing or prepping a response. And I'm speaking primarily to men here because we're terrible at listening. Just ask my wife. Well, there's much more to say on that topic. For the sake of time, though, let's move in our passage to verses 5 and 6. Paul says in verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, listen to that, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now note well here, friends, the clear parallel or the clear correspondence that Paul is making. The correspondence here is between sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings on one side and sharing abundantly in Christ's comfort on the other side. Notice that. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly, same language, in comfort Two. So on one side of the ledger, we have a 10 out of 10 level in participation in Christ's sufferings. And on the opposite side of the ledger, we have a 10 out of 10 level of participation in the comfort of Christ. The suffering may be intense, but the comfort of Christ is correspondingly intense. Now note also that little phrase there, Christ's sufferings. As believers, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. What Paul is getting at here is the fact that as believers, again, we are united, aren't we, organically and profoundly and actually and intimately to Jesus Christ. As Hansen says in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, it's not just that we imitate Jesus, it's not just that we follow Jesus. It's that we actually live in him, are part of him, dwell supernaturally in a new world where the air we breathe is his spirits. Don't forget, suffering born-again believer, that you are united to the suffering servant. And so your sufferings are his. Again, Paul can say in Romans 8.17 that we share his sufferings. Very unpopular, but there it is in Scripture. We share his sufferings that we may also share in his glory. Jesus himself said in Mark 10.39 that the cup he drinks, we drink. Being united to Jesus means sharing Christ's sufferings that we may also share 
his glory. Let's go to verse 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, if we are afflicted, now notice here, Paul is using what we call uh, the apostolic we. The apostolic we. In other words, with that word we here, he's really talking about himself. If I am afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are, if I am, comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we, I, suffer. Notice here that Paul is talking again, isn't he, about the design of God. The design of God, namely that whether Paul was afflicted or if he was comforted, ultimately the result would be a win for the Corinthians. They stood to gain comfort in the design of God, whether Paul was afflicted or whether he was comforted. So the Corinthians then should not question Paul's status with God as they witnessed all the suffering he encountered. Rather, they should rejoice that whether Paul suffered or was comforted, they stood to gain divine comfort. Verse 7, Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. What a passage this is. Friends, we close today with a reminder, and I want you to hear me well, especially if you're going through it right now. We close with a reminder that the greatest flower of God's redemptive plan came out of the worst pothole imaginable, which was the crucifixion of the Son of God. Greatest flower of God's redemptive plan came out of the worst pothole, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Our God is a God who brings beauty from ashes. Our God is a God who works strength through weakness. Our God is a God who has purposed fruit to sprout out of the cracked cement. And he is a God who is with you in all your afflictions, bringing comfort. Affliction is not something that is foreign to your faithful commitment to Jesus Christ. Rather, you are called to share in his sufferings and there receive his comfort. And remember, remember this, that your most effective ministry is likely to bloom out of your pain. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the sobriety of what you have revealed to us in your word. Lord, we ask forgiveness as your church if we have glibly passed by these places in Scripture where you give us the hard truth but yet the glorious truth about suffering. There is suffering before glory. There is a cross before a crown. And you have revealed this very clearly in your word. I pray, Lord, that this word this morning would 
grip someone's mind or heart that has been here this morning, that you would bring by your Holy Spirit healing and encouragement and direction perhaps based on this passage in 2 Corinthians. Pray, Lord, that you would walk with us closely every day this week for your sake. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, as you leave this place, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Go in peace.